RTHK News. It's 11 o'clock, I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. More than two dozen journalists resign in protest after 40 from iCable's news department are sacked. Critics say the redundancies may be aimed at cutting politically sensitive content and there are fears of a major COVID outbreak at a Chonkwano construction site. More than two dozen journalists, including senior editors and the entire China desk at iCable's newsroom, has resigned in protest after the firm abruptly sacked 40 staff members this morning. Francis Sitt reports. Angry staff surrounded the offices of senior managers demanding answers after news broke that 40 of their colleagues had been terminated. One cameraman who had just set up his equipment at Leshko was told to go immediately, leaving his camera still running. The newsroom's team of investigative reporters from his award-winning News Lancet section were among those to get the axe, as well as assistant assignment editor Wang Laiping from the China desk. We just feel angry and, and disappointed as the company keeping to cut our salaries and then lay off our people. Managers explained that the redundancies were part of a cost-cutting and restructuring exercise, but many staff members weren't having any of it. First, the remaining 11 members of the China desk quit. At least five senior assignment editors from various other sections followed suit. Then, video from iCable staff show 11 more reporters from the Hong Kong news team filing into an office to hand in their notices to senior manager He Fong Fai. In a statement, they said they were resigning in protest of the management's destruction of the news department, saying the contributions of the laid-off staff had been ignored. They added that they were infuriated that the sackings came without any consultations with department heads and that this was extremely disrespectful. Many of those who were laid off, they said, excelled at their jobs and had many years of experience. But the demands to know exactly how management chose which staff to lay off went unanswered. And it didn't help when one news executive, Anderson Chen, remarked that they were behaving like thugs for demanding answers. In a statement, iCable confirmed that around 100 staff from different departments have been affected by the latest round of terminations and reshuffling of duties. The chairman of the Journalists Association, Chris Young, says the fact that iCable sacked its entire team of investigative journalists suggests the layoffs weren't purely motivated by financial reasons. The programs done by the reporters' investigation team have made, well, people in power or with uh, financial power unhappy that the economic downturn uh, now being used as an excuse for them to cut back this kind of a sensitive content. That will be very bad for press freedom here because if media organizations are no longer able to resist this kind of pressure, and bow to pressure and cut down, say, contents that are deemed as a political sensitive. Health authorities have ordered hundreds of people working at a construction site in Chengkwano to get tested for the coronavirus over fears of a major outbreak there. Wendy Wong reports. Hong Kong's recorded another 82 COVID-19 cases. Many of them are linked to the large dance studios cluster, while over a quarter have no known source. Three of the latest confirmed patients work at a construction site at a residential development, Lohurst Park. Eight other people who work there have tested preliminary positive for the virus, and officials now want some 900 workers to get tested. Dr. Chuan Shukwan from the Center for Health Protection says it's easy for the virus to be spread at a building site. 
there are lots of person-to-person contact in the construction site worker, and not everyone can wear masks in that situation because it's quite hot sometimes, and sometimes they work in the uh, enclosed environment. So it is not unexpected uh, transmission may occur in these settings. Meanwhile, anyone who's been to the Pine Tree Hill Seafood Restaurant in Jim in the past two weeks must go for a test after a number of staff and customers came down with COVID. Sources say the government is planning to increase the fine for social distancing violations from the current $2,000 to between five dollars and $10,000. The Department of Justice is said to be studying the feasibility of the plan. The chief executive, Carrie Lam, had earlier said the current fine wasn't enough to deter people from violating regulations, and this had sparked the current surge in coronavirus infections. The government is also understood to be planning to reimpose bans on local tour groups and religious gatherings, as well as limit the number of people allowed at weddings to 20. You're listening to RTHK. The time is now exactly five minutes past 11. The Council of Social Service is warning that the government's order for care home workers to get tested for COVID-19 at community testing centres would actually increase infection risks and put vulnerable residents in danger. Staff at all care homes have until December the 14th to get tested for COVID-19 in order to continue working. Maggie Ho reports. The Council of Social Service says tens of thousands of care home workers are being made to get COVID tests at government testing centres or face a $2,000 fine and be barred from returning to work. But it said in a statement that these arrangements might do more harm than good and actually expose them to the coronavirus because they may have to wait for a long time to get the tests. And if they are infected, they would in turn put the health of residents at risk, the group warns. It says the government should instead collect saliva specimens from care home workers or arrange testing staff to visit the care homes and collect samples for tests. The government says it can't rule out sacking civil servants who refuse to swear allegiance to the SAR. It also says it's still considering whether to make teachers take the new oath as well. Damon Pang reports. Civil Service Secretary Patrick Nip told an RTHK radio program that details on any punishment for those who won't make the declaration are still being ironed out with the Department of Justice. But he said what is certain is that the career prospects of those who refuse to sign will be hindered at the very least, with little or no prospect of being promoted. If civil servants don't sign, this will make people question whether they meet the basic requirement for civil servants. Will this mean the servants can stay on in the civil service team? I think quite a number of people will have such doubts. Meanwhile, Chief Executive Carrie Lam said the administration has not yet made up its mind about whether to require teachers and those working in government-subsidized organizations to take the oath of allegiance as well. We are still deliberating very heavily on this issue. I was just referring to some approaches that have been discussed. One is, of course, that position has to be a statutory position. The other is that position may have some relationship with the government in terms of funding. It's a government-funded institution. Or maybe that is public office that discharges public powers. But we have not decided. So don't take those as being the scope. New civil servants are already being made to sign the declaration, while the rest are expected to be ordered to make the pledge in the near future. Chief Executive Carrie Lam has explained why she doesn't think she should be covered by Hong Kong's anti-bribery laws, saying the central government will take action against her if she commits any misconduct. Candice Wong has details. 
Before going into this week's Executive Council meeting, Mrs Lam was asked whether she plans to amend the Prevention of Bribery Ordinance to cover any suspected wrongdoing by the Chief Executive in accordance with recommendations made by a review committee back in 2012. But she said it would be complicated and difficult to make any changes to the ordinance because it could affect the constitutional status of the CE. Therefore, she said she has no intention of taking such action during the rest of her term. But she rejected suggestions that the CE enjoys unfettered power. In the basic law, the chief executive answers to the central people's government. The central people's government would, of course, take appropriate actions if the chief executive commits any misconduct. But I cannot say on behalf of the central people's government what such appropriate actions would be, she said. Meanwhile, Mrs Lam also declared that she is restoring Hong Kong from chaos after last year's unrest. It's now very clear we were hit by uh, riots and violence that has endangered not only the safety of this city but also national security and that's why the, the various actions have to be taken to restore Hong Kong from the chaos that uh, we have seen and people have been suffering. As the chief executive I'm leading the Hong Kong SAL government to restore Hong Kong from that chaos and for that uh, I, I have no regret. Chief Executive Carrie Lam there. A High Court jury has found a doctor guilty of manslaughter for giving a contaminated blood infusion to a customer, which led to her death seven years ago. Richard Pine has details. The High Court heard that Mac Wanling had administered the DCCIK therapy, which involves the extraction of blood that would be treated and then re-injected, on 46-year-old Chan Yun Lam at the DR Beauty Clinic on October 3, 2012. Ms Chan felt unwell and died a week later in hospital on October 10th of septic shock and multiple organ failure. The jury of four men and five women returned a unanimous guilty verdict on the manslaughter charge after around seven hours of deliberations. Mac had been ordered to face a retrial in 2018 after a different jury had been unable to reach a majority verdict. Two other defendants in the 2017 trial, DR Group founder Stephen Chow and technician Billy Chan, were convicted of manslaughter and later jailed for 12 and 10 years respectively. Hong Kong film buffs have been getting one last film in before tomorrow's coronavirus shutdown. But many people said they weren't even aware that cinemas are among the various places closing again. Natalie Ching reports. Ready? Yes. Many people have been rushing to see the latest releases in Hong Kong while they still have the chance. But others in the queue for tickets said they didn't even know that cinemas will be closing. I feel, I feel a bit angry about the government. This woman queuing for tickets in Kowloon Tong said she hadn't heard about the closure order and she doesn't think it's necessary. We don't really see the outbreaks inside the cinema. And actually the cinema has been working hard to do all the measures to control all those infections. A student, Tomoka, said she was aware of the closures and so she was getting one last film in with a friend. It's like the last chance before we can go out to these places to have some time for leisure. So I think it's kind of feel lucky. And she said she's not worried about catching COVID-19 in the cinema. To be honest, I think the Hong Kong people are really responsible in the cinemas. They don't take off their masks and people will just keep distance. So I think it's fine. A man who gave his name as Ka Wai also said he felt lucky to be able to see one more film before the restrictions came into effect. 
I'm happy. I usually have to work. It's rare for me to have a day off on a weekday. I can't watch the film tomorrow, so I rushed here to watch it today. As well as cinemas, a number of types of entertainment venues are closing for at least two weeks, including theme parks, game arcades, karaoke launches, and mahjong parlors. Meanwhile, socializing anywhere in public is going to be a bit more difficult, with the gathering limit coming down from four to just two. A new law has come into effect on the mainland, which allows the authorities to block shipments to foreign companies for national security reasons. The export legislation is widely seen as a response to restrictions imposed by the United States on Chinese technology firms such as Huawei. The BBC's Mariko Oye has more. It is practically a tech cold war, according to uh, many analysts. And this is basically China looking to cover its own advantages. And interestingly, Beijing has placed AI as well as algorithms under these export controls. That's significant because if you remember uh, when the Trump administration said TikTok's U.S. business had to be sold to an American company or else face a ban, its algorithms became a sticking point. Basically, Beijing doesn't want to share the technology. Another interesting item on the list is rare earth, which is used in everything from consumer electronics like our smartphones uh, to wind turbines. The United Nations is appealing for a record 35 billion US dollars next year to provide humanitarian aid around the world. The UN says the number of people needing help will be 40% higher than this year, largely because of the pandemic. The UN's emergency relief coordinator, Mark Lowcock, said the situation was an emergency. The picture we are presenting is the bleakest and darkest perspective on humanitarian need in the period ahead that we have ever set out, I think. Unfortunately, during 2020, we've seen new spikes of conflict in places that were previously more peaceful. The UN is expecting multiple famines and warns that millions of people are still under threat from the wars in Yemen, Syria and Afghanistan. There are fears that wealthy donor countries will spend on domestic spending rather than foreign aid. A reminder of our top stories tonight. More than two dozen journalists resign in protest after 40 from iCable's news department are sacked. Critics say the redundancies may be aimed at cutting politically sensitive content. And there are fears of a major COVID outbreak at a Chengkwano construction site. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. More than two dozen journalists, including senior editors and the entire China desk at iCable's newsroom, has resigned in protest after the firm abruptly sacked 40 staff members this morning. An entire team of journalists on the award-winning investigative segment News Lancet were among those fired, along with reporters, camera operators and production workers. iCable has said the redundancies were necessary to help it stay competitive and sustainable, and those affected will be compensated. Anna-Marie Evans asked Chris Young, the chairman of the Journalists Association, if he thinks the layoffs were all about money. Well, the fact that uh, the whole investigation team has been sacked, I think no doubt has given rise to concerns that there are non-commercial, uh, non-financial reasons uh, behind the layoffs. And that uh, because um, the, the, the program, say, done by the reporters' investigation team have, say, um, say made 
while people in power or with uh, financial power unhappy that the economic downturn uh, now being used as an excuse for them to say to cut back this kind of a sensitive content. That will be very bad for press freedom here because if media organizations are under, say, are, are no longer able to resist this kind of pressure and bow to pressure and cut down, say, contents that are deemed as a political sensitive. Yeah, I was going to say, tell me more about News Lancet. I mean, you know, how popular is it and, and what sort of influence does it have? Well, uh, recently they have done an investigative report on the Yunlong uh, attack, which, say, gives more details about the the operation or perhaps the, the failure of the police to uh, enforce the law on that night. And more recently, I think they have done a, a report about a survey uh, a, a company uh, which is believed to be owned by pro-establishment people. The way they conduct the survey, which raised a lot of questions about their about their accuracy and uh, in in and integrity. So I think those stories seems to have uh, caused embarrassment or or made people say in the pro-establishment or in the China camp pro Beijing camp angry. Uh, so. We think those those things have over the years been conveyed to the establishment and um, directly or indirectly and becoming kind of a political pressure for them say, to take to, to actions on those contents at, at some point. And un- unfortunately, I think this economic downturn, worsening economic scene, appears to have given, created opportunity uh, for them to take action. So what sort of impact do you think that this will have on Hong Kong's journalism scene? Well, it has sent a very bad message to journalists and society at large that uh, seeking truth, uh, I think, is highly dangerous. And so the, uh, the, the, the problem of self-censorship will get worse. And the public may not be able to see the whole truth if, say, um, the, the problem of censorship, self-censorship uh, deteriorates. So do you expect more layoffs to come within the industry? Well, we hope not. We hope not. But it's become quite obvious that uh, the media has become a target of a government's uh, attempt to uh, rectify, similar to, say, um, teachers, social workers, and perhaps uh, civil, uh, civil servants and judges. And, and the, the way they, they do it is for some people to, put, to, to give pressure behind the scene to media proprietors for them to do the dirty job. Now, as the chairman of the Journalists Association here, what would your advice be to journalists in Hong Kong? Extremely difficult time, but that's also the time for journalists to show the importance of a free and independent press who are committed to tell the truth um, without fear. Former Labour Party lawmaker Fernando Jiang says the government shouldn't require care home staff to get tested at its community centres. He says this would potentially expose them to the coronavirus and end up endangering the elderly residents when they get back to work. The government is requiring all care home staff to get tested before December the 14th or face a $2,000 fine. But Mr Cheung told Janice Wong if authorities really want to protect the vulnerable residents, they should make it easier for the workers to get tested. First, we should make it convenient for care home workers to go through the testing instead of asking them to 
simply go to the community centres and queue up with the rest of the public. I think we should give them subsidies to allow them to go to private testing centres or we should send health personnel to these care homes directly to make the testing more feasible and convenient. We should be reminded that at least half of these homes would have a nurse on staff. And these nurses are certainly more than well equipped to conduct these testings. So we're really not talking about the whole, um, maybe about 800 of these homes needing these care workers to conduct their tests elsewhere. Their testing could be conducted right at their workplace. So that would make it easier for them. You suggested private testing centres. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't that cost a lot more? Yeah, that would probably cost a lot more. But if we are really serious about making it easy for them to go through the test, then we should allow that. And it is easy for the government to negotiate with various testing centres for a standard rate, for example, especially for these care home workers. It is really up to the administration to make it work rather than simply putting all the responsibilities on care home workers, asking them to spend time queue up in community centres would basically also put the elderly at these uh, care homes at risk because asking them to queue up in the community centres where testings are conducted could put them at risk of contracting COVID-19. I think right now the plan is for them to line up uh, during their days off. <laughs> but but um, the, the um, welfare minister, Lo Chi Kuang, I think he, he actually said um, they only introduced these uh, mandatory test uh, requirements because um, during voluntary, uh, during five rounds of voluntary tests, the number of people getting tested uh, w- was falling. That's why they were, were sort of uh, forced to introduce mandatory testing. Well, it is understandable that they don't want to, or anyone wouldn't want the test to be done on a regular basis, right? And by simply uh, shifting all the responsibilities on them isn't a fair way of making it happen. Especially when uh, Lord Chikong even said that he doesn't believe the nurses at these care homes would sincerely or honestly conduct these tests. That goes to show how distrustful the government is about its people. China's Chang'e 5 spacecraft is set to land on the moon in an attempt to retrieve rock samples to bring back to Earth. It's been more than 40 years since lunar surface materials were last brought back. Jim Gould asked David Baker, the editor of Spaceflight magazine, how the historic mission has been going so far. It's gone very, very well, and it's another example of the step-by-step process that China is using toward a very long-term goal of putting people down on the surface to both survey, better understand the moon itself, and uh, to move toward the time when it can begin to exploit the lunar resources. Yeah, so what is the importance of collecting lunar material? Is is that mostly it, to exploit what resources may be there? I mean, it'll only be the third country to do so, right? Yes, that's correct. 
right, and it is 44 years since the last spacecraft, the, the Russian Luna 24, retrieved just a few grams of material from the surface, but we're continuously surveying in a scientific way exactly to better understand precisely the history of the moon. It's been tied so closely to the evolution of the Earth and has had a tremendous influence on the way the planet has produced life because of the gravity that has maneuvered the continents of our own home planet much much more effectively to stimulate the, the, the development of advanced life. So a better scientific understanding benefits Earth, better understanding of our own place within the solar system, and long-term is looking to that time when we can begin to extract rare Earth materials and many minerals from the Moon. Now you mentioned that the uh, long-term plan is to put uh, people on the Moon. Um, in China's case, uh, astronauts by 2030. Uh, how feasible is that? I think it's very feasible, and it's a, it's a very timely, um, well-constrained program. There's, there's no big political rush in this. We've seen in the United States that NASA was moving toward getting people back on the moon by the late 2020s, and then President Trump just two years ago, less than, gave it a quick hurry-up to get to the moon by 2024, which looks very, very, very unlikely. So I think this is going to be the decade of really beginning the first permanent settlements on the surface of the moon. Very, very workable, very logical. And I think China is taking a very, very logical series of carefully prepared steps. So uh, are we looking at a new space race in terms of getting to the moon or getting back there? I, <laughs> well, yes, I think it, it, it was a great ideological race back in the 60s with America and the Soviet Union, wasn't it? I think now there is a general enthusiasm to push on beyond Earth orbit for for nearly 50 years now. Humans have been developing complex, big, labor big laboratory in Earth orbit. Now is the time to take all that knowledge and really begin to put uh, our first blueprints for a permanently established scientific research station to better understand the moon and I think many countries are moving toward that and international cooperation is going to be the key. Brazil's space agency says the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest has hit an eight-year high, with 11,000 square kilometres raised in just the last year alone. The Amazon is a vital carbon store that slows down the pace of global warming. Stuart Pym, professor of conservation at Duke University in the US, spoke to the BBC's James Cottnall about the impact of the deforestation. The Amazon in Brazil is now losing 10,000 square kilometres of forest a year. That's about a billion tonnes of carbon dioxide that's been put into the atmosphere. And that's about as much as the carbon dioxide emissions of, of the United Kingdom and France and Italy put together. Wow. Why is it happening? So it's, it's a huge deforestation. Tropical deforestation is a huge component of, of global greenhouse gas emissions. And very often, blame for that has been put directly on the shoulders of President Jair Bolsonaro, his, his, his policies, his uh, drive for development as he would see it. Is it a fair critique? 
I think it is very much a, a criticism of Jair Bolsonaro. Over a decade ago, um, starting in 2006, 2008, uh, Brazil reduced its deforestation by about 80% and kept its deforestation low for about a decade. At the same time, it managed to increase its soybean production. It did that by, uh, by, by putting emphasis on efficient agriculture rather than just clearing uh, lots of areas of forest to, to really not do a great deal for the Brazilian economy. You, you know, clearing the, the Amazon rainforest doesn't lead by and large to very productive agricultural land. Hmm. And much of it leads to to very, very barren cattle pastures that don't contribute very much. So why is it being cleared then? Um, you know, a lot of it has to do with with local people who view this as being a part of, of who they are. You know, you can be a big man if you go and, and clear the forest and you have huge landownings. Uh, I think it's it's a, it's a, a you know a machismo expression rather than any any great economic sense. I mean, when you travel to these places, the cattle pastures that are you know former tropical forests are wretched places. I mean, Brazil is a big country; it's about the same size as the as the lower forty eight states. Um, and so many of these places are a very, very long way away from markets. So they, they're not really converting the forest into, in, into something that's agriculturally very productive. And of course, people live in the forests. These forests are not empty. They have indigenous peoples in them. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. To fight the virus together, we must protect ourselves and others and reduce social contact. Stay at home as far as possible. Avoid social gatherings and don't go to crowded places. Work from home if feasible. Don't shake hands with others. We should also avoid meal gatherings. Let's adopt these measures to prevent the spread of novel coronavirus in the community. For more information on fighting the virus, visit chp.gov.hk. Radio 3 Weather. Well, look at the weather forecast for tonight and tomorrow. Cloudy periods at first. Minimum temperature should be around 18 degrees. Fine and dry during the day with a maximum temperature of 23 degrees. The winds we can expect will be moderate northeasterlies. The outlook... Fine and dry in the following couple of days, with temperatures falling progressively, becoming rather cool in the morning and at night over the new territories towards the weekend. Currently, the air quality health index here in Hong Kong is low to moderate. The readings are 3 and 4. At the observatory, the air temperature is 20 degrees Celsius. Relative humidity stands at 68%. wasn't true and you passed them by 
Getting us started on the easy listening side of the show, that was the Delphonics, and Lala means I love you. I'm Simon Wilson, sitting in for Uncle Ray, the world's most durable DJ, is sheltering in place during this current COVID spike. I'll be playing assorted ballads and easy listening through till one, in fact, be taking care of you all the way through till Friday. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better Remember to let her into your heart Then you can start to make it better Hey 